Good morning. Good to see you all here this morning. Like newborn babies, crave pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up in your salvation. 1 Peter 2.2 Today is the day we honor our mothers. There will be no evening service. Enjoy the time with your families. Baby Bottle Drive starts today. Looks like this. I have props. These are out on the foyer table. Stuff them with $100 bills and bring them back on Father's Day. <laughs> so you're all familiar with the Baby Bottle Drive. It's very important to the Pregnancy Center. So take that home and fill it up. Prayer meeting Wednesday at 7, uh, Andrea's number, financial note there. Are you game bowling this Friday night, May 17th, from 6.30 to 8 o'clock? That's Gerlich's in, um, in, in Lapeer. 
$3 per person per game, and they're going to play two games. Uh, sign up on the helps board so we'll know how many lanes to reserve. You can come and watch or play. Murder Mystery on a, on a Train, coming June the 7th in the Fellowship Hall, 6 to 9 p.m., $7 per person, and sign up again on the helps board. Also, uh, being Mother's Day, we have a gift for the mothers, and those are right outside of the door as you leave. Make sure you get your gift. Okay, what else? Scripture for meditation this morning is from Galatians, the fifth chapter, read 16 through 26. Let's stand together and ask the Lord to bless our service. Ed, can I ask you this morning? Thanks. Dear Father in heaven, we are here to worship you. And we thank you for the opportunity. We ask the Lord for the presence of your Holy Spirit to subjugate the desires of this earth in us. is 
take your brown hymnals this morning and turn to number 561, 561 in the brown. Sir, do you have a favorite hymn this morning? One more time. 382 in the brown. 382 in the reason for this one this morning. I thought you were going to tell me you'd never heard it before and you just picked it randomly. It was <laughs> I love this hymn too. It's a beautiful hymn. 382 in the brown.
Scripture reading this morning is found in 1 Peter, and we'll be reading in the second chapter, verses 1 through 8. Eighteen eighty-eight in the Pew Bible. If you'll stand with us, we'll read together. First Peter two one to eight. Therefore, rid yourself of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, and be slander of every kind. Like newborn babes crave pure spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow up in your salvation. Now that you have tasted that the Lord is good, as you come to him, the living stone, Rejected by men, but chosen by God, precious to him. You, so like living stone, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifice acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in in Scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe this stone is precious, but to those who do not believe the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone that causes men to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. Amen. Take your red Trinity hymnal, excuse me, um, this morning and turn to 646 in the red. 646 in the Trinity.
Our scripture text this morning is 1 Peter chapter 2, the opening verses. As we come to chapter 2, Peter begins to define what he meant when he told the brethren, verse 22 of chapter 1, to love one another deeply from the heart, coupled with, verse 25, the word of the Lord stands forever. Again, sincere love is wedded to God's truth. There's no way around this. Even God's love is predicated on the truth. His love is going to be grounded in doing what's right, what's proper, what's true to his own perfect law. And that is real love. We must do the same. So as we come to our study, let's ask for the Lord's enablement. Father, we just thank you for your word and that it's the same That it never changes. That's because you never change. You are the same yesterday, today, and forever. If it weren't for the fact that God does not change, you don't change your mind, you don't change your position, you don't change your teaching, you don't change your judgments, you don't change anything, it's because you do not change that when we read in a a text like this that is centuries old, it still lays out for us what God is, what God is like, what he's going to accomplish on behalf of his own will and on behalf of his love for his people. We can count on the word of God being true because God does not change. It's only because we are sinful that we do change. We change our mind. The fact that we're sinful means that we don't know everything that we'd like to know. So circumstances change and we have to change. We go through life and we are constantly in a state of change. That brings a lot of consternation to us. But Lord, the the fact that you're the solid rock that we're fastened upon you, that you do not change, that we can bank on everything you have said and taught in your word through your apostles, through your prophets, that great, great, great hope for us, great stability for us. We can trust a God like that. You call upon us to trust you. I pray that you will help us as we look today at the road to spiritual change. For the glory of Christ, we ask these things, and for our good, amen. We're looking at 1 Peter chapter 2. We're coming into that chapter And it deals with the road to spiritual change. 
For sincere love to blossom, sinful behavior has to be nipped in the bud. And what do you say I'm referring to? Well, he says, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander of every kind. Verse 1. Therefore, rid yourself. Now, when you read the word therefore, it harks back to the closing verse of chapter 1. Verse 25 The word of the Lord stands forever, and this is the word that was preached to you. Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice, all deceit, and so on. The full list is there. Part of that word that was preached to them includes verse 13. Prepare your minds for action. Be self-controlled. Verse 14, as obedient children do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. Verse 15, be holy in all you do because God is holy. And then verse 22, deeply love. He's referring to loving your brothers from the heart. For all of this to occur, there has to be A reformation of character. No one can do this apart from the empowerment of God. Verse 2 speaks of the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. Think about this. The New Year resolutions made by unbelievers in January of the last year are already abandoned and forgotten by many. They're just gone. Assuming that the resolutions made were righteous. If they were righteous resolutions, they're forgotten and gone. Now, if they resolve to drink more and get drunk often, they might be keeping that resolution. Because flesh applauds, flesh supports that kind of behavior. But if the resolution was to drink less and never get drunk, I'd wager they have already fallen off the sobriety wagon a long time ago. Why? The sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Romans 8, verse 7. But having said all of that, this is not the case It is not the case with believers. The commands from God are doable because the empowerment is not the sinful flesh or the human will, but rather that of the Holy Spirit who gives us the ability to do what God has given us in terms of his commands. He gives us the want to, to obey God. And to do that, to rid ourselves of the various sins, which is disobedience to God. And that's what Peter says, rid yourselves of. I want you to observe, firstly, that the yourselves who are being told to do this are those born again, chapter 1, verse 23, 
In our text, they're called newborns, verse 2. In other words, they are God's elect, chapter 1, verse 1. Chosen by God, chapter 1, verse 2. Chosen for what? For obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkled by his blood. A select people, in other words, for a select purpose. Namely, to exhibit the righteousness of God to a watching world. And to accomplish such holy living, God has indwelled us with the Holy Spirit of the Christ, who commands us, chapter 1, verse 2. One of the things the states of these United States are protesting these days is the mandated service programs that are coming down from the federal government minus the funding to pay for them. See, what do you mean? Well, the government comes to our state and says, do this, do that, this is the law of the land, but we're not going to give you any money to pay for it. It happens all the time. And Michigan has taught, has caught the federal fever. It's now doing the same things with local government, doing to us on the local level what they detest from the federal policies. Do this, but you've got to find your own way to pay for it. And that's the why, brethren, we have local millages all the time. We're trying to pay for... Uh, the things that are coming to us from above. May I say that God the lawgiver does not lay down his law that way. When he commands us to rid ourselves of these various sins that militate against deep and sincere love of the brotherhood, he does not say, he does not say, oh, and by the way, You're on your own to do this, so do or die. No, no. Rather, along with the command comes the enablement of the Holy Spirit to people who have already experienced change when they were born anew by the Spirit. So on a practical level then, no true Christian can say, Oh, these commands are too hard. I cannot do them. I cannot do them. Whatever God commands his people to do, he is present to enable. This is why he said, Come unto me, all you who are weary, and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. You will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Matthew 11, verse 28 and following. A yoke, as you know, is a wooden collar used to pair two oxen together so that they can pull a load together and stay on track without each one wandering off on his own little trail. And the load is shared when the two are yoked together that way. 
think then of being bound to Christ. He says, my yoke. How is it that Jesus can promise that any load he lays on us will be easy, as he does say, and will result in rest for our souls, as he does say? How can he say that? It is because... He goes on to say, I will give you rest. I am gentle. I am humble in heart. You will find rest for your souls. All this because Christ pulls the load for us and not just with us. It is his spirit that does the empowering. One more observation here before we move on on to the details. He says, rid yourselves, cells. That is a word that is in the plural. It's the plural you, the collective you, the church corporate, the congregation. So indeed, any reform that is to result in deep love of the brethren, which issues from the heart, chapter 1, verse 22, must be of this composite effort. Look at the sins that are listed here in verse 1. Malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander. These are all sins that we perpetrate against others. There isn't a sin here that is individualistic in nature. We hate others. We love ourselves. We deceive others to try to gain an advantage in our position. Hypocrisy only has meaning in a context where we're we're trying to show off to others and pretend that we are better than they. Envy has to do with wishing we had what others have, be it goods or abilities or advantage. Slander. Spreading lies about others to bring them down. Keep in mind that Peter is addressing the persecuted church. They have enough trouble on their plate. They do not need to import more, though their own sinful selfishness and lack of love for one another could hinder. The comfort of grace is found in the truth that all the players are committed to work together to strive for and obtain the deep love that denies self and promotes the well-being of the whole. And Peter is not addressing one or two people in the church. He is writing to us all collectively. He is charging us corporately to be about the work of ridding ourselves of these divisive and unloving sins that work through the church corporate. So let's take a look at the catalog of sins of which we must rid ourselves. And by the way, I'd have to say, 
This is not a comprehensive list of all the sins that are available, but certainly those which militate against a deep love for the brothers. He says, all malice. The word used here is sometimes interpreted as a general wickedness. For example, Simon Magnus, the sorcerer who wanted to buy the ability to bestow the Holy Spirit on people, was condemned by Peter saying, repent of this wickedness, that's this word, repent of this wickedness, Acts 8 verse 22. And he again, Peter uses the same term in the general sense in Second Peter 2, our text, verse 16 of Balaam who had a donkey who rebuked him for his wrongdoing. Same word, malice. It's the same Greek word, what I'm talking about. So, is this what Peter is saying here? Brethren, rid yourselves of all wrongdoing, of rid yourselves of wickedness in general. Think about this. This is a lifelong Venture unobtainable in this life, if that's what he's saying. I mean, even with the work of the Holy Spirit in sanctification, you'll never get it done. What is more, such effort to deal with generalities hardly addresses the specific problem of rectifying the love lost among the brethren of the Well, the word has another meaning in Scripture. Much more pointed, much more definitive. Not wickedness in general, but a particular kind of wickedness. A wickedness that shoots its others, not in shotgun, scattered gun pellets, not that way. But rather more like a rifle bullet with the singular propellant targeting one individual. Very pointed. Paul's usage in Titus 3, verse 3 is the idea. Let me read it for you. He says, At one time we too were foolish and disobedient, deceived and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. You see here how personal this malice is. Being hated and hating one another. That's personal. That's selective. Malice is a form of hatred. It is hatred based on self-love, which is the cardinal sin of us all. Self-love, unchecked, becomes selfishness. And malice is ill will towards others whom we perceive as standing in the way of our own interests. For us to advance, they have to be brought down. That's the way malice thinks. Instead of wishing them well, we wish them evil. Instead of being devoted to one another in brotherly love, 
honoring one another above ourselves, Romans 12, verse 10, a heart of malice is ever ready to think the worst, say the worst, do the worst to another if it is believed that such will advance our own selfish ends. Wow, well, what do we have to say about this type of sin? Is this really possible? How often do we wish ill on other people, the brother of the faith? They do not agree with us on a particular doctrine. They practice some form of Christian liberty that we consider anathema. Or they are more popular stealing the spotlight we think we should have. And all of this kind of irritates us. It gives us ulcers, keeps us awake at night sometimes. So Peter charges you and me, rid yourselves of such malice. There isn't an ounce of love in it. You're living for yourself and only for yourself. But while this is true, we can't seem to let it go. We hold a grudge against them, but mostly against God for promoting them above us. But malice has to go. Secondly, he says all deceit. This sin follows in link-like fashion to malice because the word indicates a fraudulent, dishonest use of means to gain a particular end. David's prayer to God was, Do not drag me away with the wicked, with those who do evil, who speak cordially with their neighbors, but harbor malice in the heart. Psalm 28, verse 3. That's an accurate description of fraudulent deceit. A person who speaks cordially with his neighbor, all the while harboring malice in his or her heart. Mr. or Mrs. Two-Faced. What you hear coming from their mouth is sweet, it's kind, it's praiseworthy. But what you don't hear and what you don't see is the real hatred of the heart. Many a church has been fractured and dissolved by this kind of insincerity and trickery. I should not have to point out that such behavior is the direct opposite of a man or woman of truth. But observe... This is not bold-faced lying, else such a person would be discovered in a heartbeat, right? No, this is deception. Every magician I know works on what can be called sleight of hand. They do that to create misdirection. While he moves his fingers in an alluring manner on his left hand, he's misdirecting your eyes away from what's going on with the right hand, which is working the trickery. Now we look at that in a magic show and we say, well, 
this deception is for fun. It's, it's for entertainment purposes, and I would agree. But it is neither fun nor entertaining when another brother or sister in the faith cannot trust you to be a person of integrity and truth. When because of past experience they cannot trust a word you say to be reflective of true motives. This is why people walk around other people as though they're walking on eggs. You've heard that expression. They never know where they stand. That's why they do that. They don't know. If a person that they're dealing with is telling them lies or telling them the truth. They have no sense if a person is being genuine or false. That's pretty poor if we get a reputation like that. They can't detect if all is well or if at any moment you might break out into a fit of rage. No one is going to open up to those who practice deceit. They will remain closed, confined, guards up, very protective, noncommittal, suspicious, withdrawn. What do you expect? God's people, Peter calls us to be genuine. To be a what-you-see-is-what-you-get kind of person. Not in the sense of, well, if you don't like it, you can lump it. Not that way. No, not flouting our sin before others and say, well, that's just me. You can take me for what I am or get lost. No, Peter's calling us to be genuine in the sense of being like Christ. A person of truth, integrity, compassion, kindness, honesty. A person with whom you could share your deepest sorrows and know that there would be genuine empathy and love coming from you to help them. Is this you? Are you trustworthy? No malice. no selfishness. Thirdly, he addresses hypocrisy. The original term, hypocrisis, you can see, that's a Greek term, and you can see where we get the English word, hypocrisis, hypocrisy, is a compound word consisting of hypo, yes, beneath or under, and crino, to make a pronouncement or a judgment, or to speak. Thus, hypocrisy is to say something under one's breath, while not revealing a hidden agenda. The term came to mean any form of play-acting, because the dialogue of the actors or actresses was scripted and not necessarily their own true manner of expression. So it's a theor- theatrical term. A not-for-real kind of dialogue. 
It has to do with pretending. Not being real, or our expression today is for real. Are you for real? I hear teenagers say that to one another. Playing a role for all to see, but being somewhat totally different on the inside. The Pharisees are the classic example. Let me read it for you. Jesus said of them, On the outside... You appear to people as righteous, but on the inside you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. Matthew 23, verse 28. They were playing a part. (laughs) The people expected righteousness from their spiritual leaders, so they dressed the part when they were in public. But Jesus knew what was inside them, however, and so he could and he did expose them. Well, he knows you and me on the inside, too. And we may be people who say one thing while being another. It may take a while, but eventually the brethren will sense the hypocrisy. Now, the opposite of malice is love. And the opposite of deceit is uprightness. And the opposite of hypocrisy is sincerity. Appearing in real life as we are in reality. Not out to snow the other person to convince them that we are better than we are, or even worse, to feed a reputation of being, oh, I'm a tough guy. Peter says the pretenses have to go. We are not actors playing a role on a stage before an adoring public. We are just sinners saved by grace and often more comprised by sin than sanctified by the Spirit. And, uh, you know, if you're around people of the world, they'll catch that in a hurry and let you know about it. And when that happens, we don't try to defend ourselves If we are caught in a sin, we say, you know, you're right. I'm sorry. Please forgive me. And that's why Christ died. And then Peter mentions a fourth sin, envy. Now, envy is not the same as jealousy. The word for jealousy in scripture can indicate something good as well as something evil. Did you know that? For example, Paul writing to the Corinthian believers said, I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. I promised you to one husband to Christ so that I might present you as a pure virgin to him. 2 Corinthians 11 verse 2. And within context, Paul is concerned that these people might desert the Jesus of the gospel for a Jesus of the false teachers, an idol Jesus, a figment of sinful speculation. So in this text, jealousy is a good thing. Paul is jealous that the Corinthians do not desert Christ. 
that they continue in the gospel that he taught them. Oh, by the way, incidentally, the word jealous with a J and zealous with a Z are the same Greek word. Only the context will indicate how the word is to be interpreted, whether it be jealous or zealous. Zealous is good. You're zealous for the right things. However, in contrast, the word envy has no good connotation. It always has an evil meaning. Envy has to do with ill will towards a person whom we perceive has an advantage over us or some benefit or character trait of which we are deprived, and so we desire to bring them down instead of working to bring ourselves up to their character. We envy them. It's the negative of emulation. Not proud of that person. Not happy for them and what they have or can do by God's grace, but rather the desire to bring them low, to reduce them to trouble rather than blessing. A good illustration of this is the trial of Jesus before Pilate. And we read in Pilate's thinking, he says, For he knew it was out of envy that they had handed Jesus over to him. Matthew 27, verse 18. And the they that did the handing over were the religious leaders who saw their popularity waning, going down, while Jesus became more and more popular with the people by the moment. So they envied his ability to thwart their stupid and deceptive questions. His righteousness could not be bribed. It couldn't be bought. They envied the love and acceptance from the people at large. They envied him, but they would not emulate him. And their envy surfaced in trying to bring him down, and that's what the crucifixion was all about from their viewpoint. Got to get rid of this guy. Got to bring him down. Now, we may not want to execute anyone, but brethren, envy is a form of hatred. And hatred is the underlying sin of murder. You can read about it in Matthew 5, verse 21. So why do Christians put down other believers? If the problem is sin in their lives, the godly thing to do is to speak to them about that sin and to pray for them. If the trait is commendable, the godly thing to do is to emulate them, copy their behavior as it mimics Christ. Paul even said this, that he wanted people to follow him as he followed Christ. If they have some advantage over us, Paul says, love must be sincere Hate what is evil, cling to what is good, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. 
Honor one another above yourselves. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Romans 12, verse 9 and following. Great admonition from the apostle. Dealing with brotherly love. Dealing with the sin of envy. The fifth sin he mentions is slander of every kind. That's the way he words it. Slander of every kind. What is slander? Well, slander is more than just lying. It is that. But if someone asks you a, a personal question, so, or why are you having surgery on Monday? And we prefer not to share that with them. We may be tempted to lie, saying, well, I'm having a corn removed on my big toe. The real truth might be that what we're going into surgery for is much more serious. But slander is often the mouthpiece of all the sins in this list. Slander is a malignant form of lying. Yes, not telling the truth, but lying through whispering, through innuendo, by snide remarks, through hinting some wrong, through backbiting, all to ruin the good reputation of another. So we could say this, slander is vicious lying, it is injurious lying, it is destructive lying. You should not have to think hard to see that such malignancy of another brother's character is wicked and must not continue. We must rid these things of our lives. God's injunction, and we're reading it here, rid yourselves of all these sins. Notice the injunction is not you need to beware of these evils that can infiltrate a congregation and guard yourself against them. That's not what he says. He says, put those sins off. Put them off. Rid yourselves of them. He does not allow us to think that we as a community of God's people are not affected by such things. Nor is the injunction... Cover these sins with a veil of politeness and courtesy and false humility and just be a little understanding. By the way, Peter is the same apostle who wrote these words. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. Peter did write that, 1 Peter 4 verse 8. But our text says nothing of covering over these sins. What's he talking about? Well, if someone offends us personally by some sin of discourtesy or omission, that we can cover over and forgive and forget. But the sins in this catalog are not sins of a one-to-one nature. They are corporate sins. Again, I go back to the word yourselves, and it's plural. Rid yourselves. 
They strike out at everybody in the church. They barricade. They destroy any hope for deep love from the heart which must bind the local church together. And nor is this injunction a charge to mitigate these sins through some form of modification. We're not to clean up these sins, but to clean them out is a form of radical house cleaning. Reminds me of a time my son-in-law, Jim, discovered black mold growing on the drywall in his basement laundry room. Well, he didn't whip out a can of colored paint and paint over the mold. No, he ripped the wallboard out and replaced it with that new mildew-resistant wallboard. What was Jesus' complaint against the religious elite of his day? Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of dead men's bones and everything unclean. Matthew 23, verse 27. Before we get too sanctimonious and think that We would never act that way. Peter tells his people and us that we are already people who suffer from these sins and these sins must be ripped out and thrown into the trash bin. Christian morality is uncompromising. Note, all malice, all deceit, slander of every kind, no leaf left unturned. In fact, Peter isn't even talking about the branches and the leaves. The world's practices of self-reform is to trim the tree a bit, you know. But pruning only strengthens the evil fruit that's growing there. No, Peter says, destroy the root. Take the axe to the root. Whack away at the cause of the sin not the outward manifestations. Rid yourselves of the sins completely. Don't mollify them with window dressings. Rip it out. Tear it out. Discard it. Okay, so my question is, what's involved in craving spiritual growth? Number one, spiritual growth begins with seeking for it. In our text, we're going to look at this further in in Peter, where he begins to make an analogy between natural growth of the physical body as it relates to the spiritual growth of the soul. But for now, I want you to observe Peter's reference to newborn babes, which indicates life and needed growth and also imperfection, lack of full maturity, you see. Newborn life. What is dead cannot grow. 
Stillborn babies do not grow. For growth to occur, there has to be life. For people to grow spiritually, they must be born again. Chapter 1, verse 23. Or as Peter puts it in our text, newborn babes. There must be life from an imperishable seed through the living and enduring word of God. Chapter 1, verse 23. And for that to occur, it is Peter told the crowd in Acts, Repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. Acts 3, verse 19. I'll put it this way. God is not in the business of revision. God is in the business of total reconstruction. Just as Peter is instructing us to go on to maturity by ridding ourselves of these corporate sins, verse 1, so he had taught earlier that there is no beginning the Christian life until unless there has been repentance of sin and a turning to God. Beginning spiritual life and growing in one's life are fixed upon the same root, the root of Jesse, Jesus Christ, the author of life. I've heard on occasion someone in the Hollywood crowd will speak of how they have matured spiritually through the years. Yeah, they've actually used these words. They've matured spiritually through the years, and they will talk of the earlier days when they were promiscuous sexually or into marijuana and other drugs. And they will speak of ideological changes in their thinking from the naivete, a political utopia, to a more realistic assessment of things as they are. And all this they will reference as, I have gone through some kind of spiritual growth. Well, (laughs) none of it has to do with repentance of sin. None of it has to do with a newfound loyalty. And none of it has to do with a love and allegiance to Jesus Christ. Where there is no spiritual life, God life, It is ludicrous to speak of spiritual growth. Then too, Peter's injunction presupposes that every Christian has a need to grow and can grow spiritually. Peter uses the analogy of the newborn infant, but it's only an analogy. Notice his words. He says, like newborn babes, crave Pure spiritual milk. He doesn't say that his readers are newborn babes in the faith, but they, like newborn babes, though now mature, are well on the road to increasing maturity, but they have the capacity to grow yet more and more. It's the old adage that we never outgrow our need to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. 2 Peter 3, verse 18. We can learn more and know better and more thoroughly the very truths that converted us and made us part of God's family. The writer of Hebrews chided his readers for their lack of spiritual initiative, calling them slow to learn And then he gave this charge. Therefore, let us leave the elementary teachings about Christ and go on to maturity. Not laying again 
the foundation of repentance from acts that lead to death and to faith of God, instruction about baptism, laying on of hands, resurrection of the dead, eternal judgment. He says, not, how many times have we got to preach that to you? Basically, that's what he's saying. God permitting, let's go on, let's move on. It's great that you have those foundational stones. But there's more to Christian living than that. Foundations are meant to hold a superstructure. Walls, windows, a roof, everything in between. A foundation is where we begin, yes. But it is not where God wants us to live out our whole Christian life. There's far more to Christianity than the ABCs of the faith. So Peter is calling us to grow as one of the ways in which to rid ourselves of these awful sins that he has cataloged for us. And finally, any talk of growth presupposes imperfection. We sometimes say to our children, you have a lot to learn. (laughs) Have you ever said that to your kids? You have a lot to learn. We say that because we recognize that in them there is an immaturity of knowledge or partial knowledge or an impractical application of what is known. In short, there's more ignorance than wisdom. While learning, a child is bombarded with many facts, just crammed into the head. Well, they do not always learn the meaning of the facts or how to piece them together together for a beneficial whole. The same holds true in spiritual growth. The imperfection we experience is often due to the cramming in of biblical facts of faith without deep comprehension. You have two choices. We can concentrate on lesser but more copious amounts of biblical information, or we can concentrate on understanding well what we already know. Peter says that we are to crave pure spiritual milk. Again and again, the New Testament writers warn us to stay away from, stay away from the novel, from fiction, from myths, from genealogies, from useless inquiries that do nothing but gender strife. Don't you have a better thing to do with your life, with your study habits? When always looking at the novel, the latest chit-chat. Every Christian has some knowledge of Jesus Christ and Him crucified, but they may be ignorant of the decrees of God, the inworkings of church government, or the details of end-time prophecies. Spiritual growth will advance greater in you and with much more benefit if you study what you know. What do you know? Jesus Christ. And a desire for a deeper and closer walk with him 
If you study him in that deeper way, rather than reaching for things in the Bible that you know nothing about. Spiritual growth will be hindered more by the imperfection of knowing Christ deeper than by an absolute ignorance of lesser biblical truths. Listen to Paul's prayer for the Philippian church. This is my prayer, he says, that you, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless until the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Philippians 1, 9 through 11. And his prayer for them is reminiscent of his own spiritual aspirations in life. Here's his prayer. Paul says, I want to know Christ. Listen to that. The Apostle Paul. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I've already obtained all this or have already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that for which I myself have been taken hold of. Brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what's behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenwards in Christ Jesus. Philippians 3, verse 10 and following. I would say it this way. It's more vital that you know Jesus intimately than that you know how to refute evolution. It is more important for your spiritual growth that you plunge deeply into the wellspring of the Spirit's work of regeneration than to know what gift he may have given you to serve the Lord. It is more conducive to spiritual maturity that you know the character of God the Father than any study you might do on angels or demonology. You see, see where I'm going? There's lots of things we could study. They're in the Bible. Yeah, we could study those things. But if you will spend your time knowing Christ and studying Christ and learning of him, you will advance and grow spiritually in leaps and bounds. To know God is true spiritual growth that moves us from imperfection to that one who commands us, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Matthew 5, 48. And if you're an unbeliever here this morning, you need to start at the beginning. What's the beginning? The beginning is the basics about Jesus. So you read the gospel accounts. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Learn who he is, why he came to earth, how he relates to sinners, why he alone can promote and promise salvation. Those are the basics. And you'll never know God and you'll never know where you stand with God until you know his son. Because the son reveals the father to us. 
Our Lord, we thank you for your word. How precious. Give us a hunger to study Christ, to learn of him. Sure, we could could study a lot of other things in the Bible, that's for sure. And I'm not saying that, that all things that we study in the Bible are wrong. No, it's always good to study God's word. But if we'll take time to study Christ and make him the center of our thought and our study, trying to understand what God has done in giving us his son, we will advance in leaps and bounds spiritually. And you would have it so, because you tell us in John's gospel that you want your people to dote on the Son. That was your plan all along, that we might honor the Son, believe in the Son, trust in Him. And we get sidetracked on so many other things. For any here that are outside of salvation, they'll never know salvation unless they come to Christ. Grant them that search, Lord, and that Holy Spirit enlightenment that only you can give. For the glory of Jesus, we pray these things. For our own good, we pray these things. Amen. Our closing hymn is from the Brown Hymnal 387. Let's stand as we sing. 387 in the brown hymnal. Don't forget your baby bottles out on the foyer table. Fill it up with money for the pregnancy center.
It's a great hymn, but it's also a prayer, as you noted the way it was worded there, that God would stamp his own image on our heart. Happy Mother's Day to all the mothers. Hope you will remember to uh, pick up your gift as you're passing out the door here. And then if you will also uh, pick up a baby bottle to collect money for the pregnancy center. This runs from Mother's Day to Father's Day. And we bring those bottles in. And I'm sure Sheila will see that it gets to the center or somebody will see that the bottles get there. So the Lord bless you. Have a good day. And don't come tonight because you'll be all by yourself if you do. (laughs) We are dismissed.